P2Chat is a weekly podcast for health professionals that delivers grassroots information and resources to support the diabetes care and education of people with diabetes across the health system. Hi, I'm Jane Lehman, registered nurse and credentialed diabetes educator. And I'm Kiralee Chambers, advanced practicing pharmacist and credentialed diabetes educator. This week, we're going to be chatting about the ups and downs of social media and what happens when somebody puts up a photo of a metformin box with a very special title. We're also going to have a look at one of the questions that one of the followers has uh, given us as well. And Kiralee, that's going to be about how you structure your appointments. So why don't we have a look at the question that we got sent in, Kiralee. Do you want to know what the question was? Yeah, so... um... The question was sent in from, as you say, one of the readers, and it was, what have you wanted to get from your CDNE? And it was, when I see people with type 1, they are the, indeed the uh, experts at the disease. I listen, offer support and advice where needed. However, do you have a core checklist that you follow? And are there things that you always explore and questions, etc.? So, mm. good Good question. Very good question. I think it's something that um, certainly when we all start out doing our sessions with people, uh, having a a checklist of what we need to make sure we go through, it's a bit like a life raft. Yeah, it is a little bit. So there's always, you know, blood glucose monitoring, ketone monitoring, Mm. whether their injection sites are uh, not got lumps in it and how they're storing their insulin. There's always quite important especially if they're newly diagnosed I think they've been doing it for a long time it's probably not as essential so what's really funny is that as you're learning how to do education sessions I know when I first started we had a great resource that for each topic it had subsections of all the like a list of all the things you could cover in that topic so say it was blood glucose monitoring and it would have things like the technique using the meter, the finger pricking site location, uh, how often to change the the lancet, all those little sub bits. Now, yes. when you're first learning, the trouble is it's tempting to sit there and just talk at the person. Mm. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. You're there thinking. I've got all this to teach them in X amount of time. Mm. And so in your head or physically, you're looking at the checklist and making your way through it. Mm. Do you think that changes though, the more you do it? Yes, because one of the issues, people come to the appointments with their own agendas a lot of the time. Mm. And the most important thing is to ask what they want from the consultation, because often they have different agendas to what we as healthcare professionals have. So Mm. that's very important to find out what they want out of their appointment, because at the end of the day, it's their appointment. Mm. And they'll often have, you know, anxieties or needs that are quite unrelated to what Mm. we want to teach them. I think back to when I started, I used to do one hour sessions Mm. and I would have multiple sessions. Mm. Now, you know, there's a lot of people that I only get 30 minutes with. Yes. With working in self-employed practice, I'm amazed at how effective it can be addressing what people want because they know what they need quite often. Are we good at believing that they know what they need? Not always. (laughs) No. 
So, you know, if we think as health professionals we know best, having a checklist is a great foundation. It also helps from a insurance point of view to make sure that we've done the best that we can. But at the end of the day, it's only a template. Yeah, and it also doesn't mean you have to do it all at once. No, that is correct. So, you know, if you've got the list, you need to know that they're all the things that, in theory, people need to know in order to do whatever it is we're teaching them safely. However, they don't need to know it all in one session. And so a lot's going to depend on, like you say, Kiralee, what the person needs is the best place to start, I find. And then you can add other bits in. Mm. So find out what they're already doing right by getting them to, for example, just keep on blood glucose monitoring, to uh, bring their meter with them and do the technique. And that way you can go, yep, that's fine. They know what they're doing. Or here, just remember to close the lid on the bottle or those things. So you don't just have to sit there and talk at people. It's around using that lists of things as your background knowledge of what you're going to check as well as teach yes and it's also important to acknowledge that they are the experts Mm. even when they're newly diagnosed they're looking after their diabetes 99 percent of the time we might see them once or twice in a year Mm. so it's important to acknowledge that you know they're still doing this most of the time Mm. so this core checklist i i do have a checklist in my notes but i'm experienced now after 33 years I don't need the checklist because I know it but I know when I first started I depended on that checklist like a life raft yes and so it does also depend on where you're at with the development of your knowledge and skills around diabetes you'll find too that some of the documents with the Australian Diabetes Educators Association will have a list of what you need to know as a CDE. But there's also, for the nurses out there, nursing education framework that's being worked on with the National Diabetes Services Scheme at the moment. What they're doing is working out where nurses, basically from novice to expert, what knowledge do they need around diabetes when they, for example, leave uni and become a registered nurse to the more expert sort of nurse practitioner end of things. So that's going to be launched next year. Sounds great. Yeah, I've been on their group. Yeah. However, it will also provide a really good list of things that people need to know for other health professions as well when it comes to developing their knowledge and skills, I think. Even though it's designed for nurses, I think people are going to be able to use it maybe as a bit of a template for what you want people to know as well. Yeah, because that checklist is you know so advanced now you know with again continuous glucose monitoring insulin pump therapy what they're using for their management of their diabetes there's no way that you could cover any or all of that if they even if they were coming to you you know once a week for six months Mm. and as quickly as you're checking that checklist off the advancements in the treatment Mm. and the technology of diabetes is changing so Mm. you're never going to be able to be across all of that no, and the way you're going to present that information will be different to, for example, someone with type 1 diabetes who's very keen to keep doing multiple daily injections compared to someone who's got continuous glucose monitoring and pumping. Yes. So it's also going to be different depths of information and you don't have to do it all. So like in my practice, 
I encourage people to go to Diabetes SA and do their group education sessions because I know I'm not going to get enough time with them, but Mm. I can help customise the information around their version of diabetes. Yes, yeah. So yeah, knowing when to refer to other allied healthcare professionals is very important because again, at the end of the day, we're a team. Yeah, that's where having primary healthcare teams linked around the person with health professionals who suit that person, I think is to some extent a little bit of what we're missing. Mm. We've got parts of that happening when you look at GP, practice nurse, pharmacist, podiatrist, but with so many people not seeing a credentialed diabetes educator as well, they're missing out on a review using these sorts of robust reviews Yes. Providing information or a, a second point of accessing more detailed technology information. Yes. That's very true. But especially with the issues around blood glucose monitoring not now being recommended by RACGP, you know, we've now got a situation where so many people with type 2 diabetes aren't being offered blood glucose monitoring because the GP's list of what they go through. Yes doesn't include monitoring yes and it's it's almost seen to be not as effective or as important for someone with type 2 diabetes now it's almost um, seen to be Mm. um, for the elite people Mm. that are on insulin which is so incorrect isn't it and as you know we know it's those decisions were made around research that was ignored yes so it's not like we don't have an evidence base to what we're talking about people with diabetes need that information in order to make the decision themselves it's not up to us really or the doctor in many ways to say you don't need to do that because i don't think a lot of gps realize how much people use it to understand their food and stress and exercise and lifestyle change and hormones and and also the the impact of their medications what happens when they're sick you know you can still do prudent monitoring without it being a big cost to the person in their time energy effort and the perceived impact of pricking your fingers but if we don't give people the information they can't make that decision themselves yeah so again it comes back to person-centered care really Mm. doesn't it Well, it does. And I also wonder, you know, we're all told about doing our due diligence all the time. What happens when another health professional's list of what they go through is based on one type of evidence and there's a poor outcome later in that person's health? What happens with the potential for being sued? Because there is research out there. So the lists that we have, we do need to make sure that they're evidence-based. Mm. But we have to also review them from time to time Mm. because some things go in and some things go out with the evolving evidence as well. Correct. So once you've got a list, it's not going to be static. Yes. So I love that question. It's a great question. Yeah. We'll think about that more, I think, in the future because I, I don't think that one's going to be something that goes away. No. Not at all. Okay, so the next thing we thought we might talk a little bit about is the ups and downs of social media, Jane. Yeah, I think that's a good one. <laughs> and um, interestingly, not that long ago, there was a post on a social media page which a A&E doctor put on there which had a photo of a metformin box mm-hmm. and on it it had on the label, take one tablet at night, which is you know, a yeah. reasonable yeah. thing to put on there. But then also on it, it had also stop eating McDonald's, 
otherwise your feet will fall off. So, oh my. Mm, and it had about uh, six, from memory, 653 comments. And consequently, it did attract quite a bit of attention. Yes, so there was a blog written by Renza Shabilia. Yes, Diabetogenic is her blog post page. Yeah, so it was uh, Ally, uh, question mark, not really, about whether healthcare professionals are supportive of people with diabetes or not supportive simply mm. because we don't come to the defence of people with diabetes. That, again, attracted a lot of interesting comments. Well, I think it was also feeding in around the whole <laughs> is diabetes ever funny kind of judgment, if you like, from health professionals that sneaks in sometimes. Facebook is somewhere in social media where you do see, for example, cartoons or comments or pictures where you have health professionals, I guess, being very judgmental of aspects of a person's health care. Yes. And, and really interestingly, I think we're seeing social media used so much more either from peer support or people are starting to connect with healthcare professionals to help them with all sorts of conditions, so yeah. not just diabetes. So I think we need to be very aware that there are people using social media to connect with other people with diabetes and also us as healthcare professionals. So we do need to be very careful. Did you want to read out a couple of the comments? Yeah, I? well, what was fascinating and something Renza highlighted as well was that there were so many responses to this from having had a look at some of the comments that some of them were saying, uh, yes, that's really funny. Wish we could do that more. Uh, there was things like, I take this for PCOS and I'm on the big side due to my PCOS. You need to think before putting something on there that will upset the person. What we need to remember is that we're not in a closed place. Yes. One, it's never okay to, to judge people like this, which is what really happened with the comments that was being said. It was basically having a go and not using more skill to understand why people find some of this hard. Yes. And there was also a lot of people who came to, I guess, the defence of people with diabetes reassuringly. But there was also this pack mentality where you had lots of comments and remembering there were over 600 saying, if only we could put things like that, laughing with tears down their face with their emoji. So you can't tell me that those attitudes don't come through. Yes, and the interesting thing, as you say, is that even when we're not expressing openly, I think that potentially we're expressing it in the way that we're acting and in body language. And mm. people are not silly. They know that we're judging them, even if we're not openly expressing it. Mm. So it's difficult enough to have a chronic health condition and we often get asked why we have no-shows to mm. our um, appointments. And I believe that this is the reason why, is that people mm. know if they need to lose weight, they don't need to get on a set of scales. There's so much guilt associated with this condition. Interestingly enough, I always ask, and I'm sure you do as well, if there's a family history mm. of diabetes. And genetics plays an enormous part mm. in whether people are diagnosed with type 2. Obviously, there's a small genetic 
predisposition if you've got type 1, but there's an enormous genetic predisposition if they've got type 2. So they're almost behind the eight ball before they're even diagnosed. Yeah. And there's so much misunderstanding that hyperglycemia, so elevated glucose levels, will drive people to eat. Mm. So when their blood glucose level gets above 11, the body's actually starving mm. because the insulin's not working properly. So and the glucose will... isn't getting in the cells, so all the body wants is glucose. Correct. So, so if you fundamentally don't understand what's going on mm. and that person doesn't understand that, they will go for sugary snacks, mm. sweets and treats. And if we don't help people to get that glucose in, mm. then they will still crave. What's not surprising is that this guy works in A&E because in his work, he sees people who are in trouble. Yes. Whether that be from a problem with their feet and high glucose levels and turn up because they need that extra quick assessment and potential hospitalisation. So to start with, this guy would be seeing a slanted view and such a short dimension of time with those people and yet he makes this judgement. Yes. And the thing that disturbs me the most is that so many people jumped on the bandwagon. Yes. What was, I guess, unique with this was that so many people with diabetes or who are taking metformin, like the girl with polycystic ovary syndrome, are able to say to this person and call it out for what it is. Yes. So social media opens up the potential for this sort of information to be shared. But do you know what? You'll be brought to account with it if you do. So it's easy for us to think that this was all bad. What was good was that it did generate so many comments. I would love to go through and count up how many were on the positive or negative side of this comment and also how many people liked the comments where they they said that this is not right. You, yes. We can't behave like this because this impacts on the emotional health of people and you're missing a whole heap of stuff. Yes, that's a great point. If we don't go through and look at it, it would be easy to assume that all 600-odd people were giving a re reinforcement of that view, when in fact they weren't. And when you also have a look at the fact that this was shared 1.4 thousand times. Wow. So this has gone a long way. If you looked at the impression of this, were the shares being shared in a positive or negative way? Yes. So again, there's actually a need for some research to be done around the use of humour by health professionals. We all know as health professionals, there are things that we will all say away from people that we might find funny, but you better make sure when you do that it is funny. Yeah. That it's not at someone else's extent. And that happened also during the Congress dinner. Yes, with the comedian. Yes. So what happened for those who aren't aware, there was a comedian that was employed to make some jokes, but unfortunately no one understood the context or the content of his jokes. And they were at, sure, he had diabetes, but they were made uh, in poor taste, I believe. That's my opinion about people with diabetes and unfortunately it fell very flat and it was quite embarrassing so and there were quite a lot of people reacting as soon as it all happened 
Yes. So the conference organising committee had obviously heard about this comedian. He has type 1 diabetes himself, which yes. he declared at the beginning. Yes. And he made fun of himself to some extent. Oh, he did make fun of himself, but then he expanded some of the jokes to also include other all other people with diabetes. It's okay to make fun of uh, your own diabetes if that's how if you think that that's relevant and comical, but then he expanded those jokes to also include everyone with uh, diabetes and hypos and all sorts of things. And mm. unfortunately, that touched a raw nerve, not only with people with diabetes in the audience, but most mm. of the diabetes educators mm. that I spoke to. I didn't, unfortunately, get a chance to speak to any endocrinologist, mm. but I can imagine that some endos were feeling very uncomfortable. He drew laughs, but it was kind of those laughs where you're uncomfortable, quite Uncomfortable, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like, he would have realised it all fell flat. Yeah. So I did feel sorry for him I felt as sorry well. for him as well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same as looking at to cancer. And it was interesting because the, the I don't know how many people have seen that taboo show. Mm. That was done in really good taste. Mm. And, and that guy that hosted the taboo show asked what people were not comfortable to be brought up, what subjects were completely off limit and what words he was not allowed to use in that show. Mm. So he, that was done in completely good taste. So humour can be a great medium, mm. but this was not done in good taste at all, I don't believe. Again, that's my opinion. Humour can go really wrong. <laughs> yes, and I believe that at that night it did go very wrong yeah. unfortunately and I, I think it has as well with the advice that's been added to this metformin medication the other problem with it is that it's using fear and it's not giving people information that they can use proactively and I've heard grumpy pumper from social media and yourself and others who've had type 1 diabetes for a long time talking about the number of years where you've had levels that have been high because of the inability of the old insulins to help manage glucose levels yes so you've got people with this legacy of the medications not being that great but how many people in A&E have their literacy checked yes so we have to stop telling people what to do without taking them through a process or setting up referral to people who can help them go through a process of putting information into action yeah well it's a bit like i often get referrals from doctors where the person in front of me has been told to lose weight and my question to them is have you been shown or been given information on how to do that because mm. it's, it's been like telling someone to who gets in a car for the first time, um, we have to pass a test on how mm. to drive, but never been shown. No. And, you know, driving is a complex task, and so is driving your type 1 diabetes. Yeah, or even type 2. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's difficult to be able to manage a chronic health condition day in, day out. And when people are dictated to how to do that with mm. no resources whatsoever, oh, oh it's but so also hard. that, you know, watch out for your feet, watch out yeah. for your eyes. Yeah. So at least if you're learning to drive, you get something positive out the yeah. end of it. Yes, exactly. But if you've got type 1 diabetes, all you're being threatened with are things that may not happen. And these numbers that are so arbitrary at yeah. the end of the day. And we do new research and then we change it. Yeah. And so I just think the guy who did this needs a bit of a, a, a reality check. And I think what Renza was getting at was if, as health professionals, we say that we understand people with diabetes and we're there to support them. We can't stand by when you see this sort of thing happen and calling it out becomes a way to change it. Yes. 
it would be fascinating to go through and I wish I had the time to count the numbers. Yes. And I think that would be a great article as well at a at a conference is to start talking about this stuff in more detail about our language and the words we use and the impact and we're going to keep banging on about it and giving people examples in order to help make a difference with that via p2 chat yes so this week we really talked about we don't really have a structure but having a good checklist of the basics and just allowing people to talk about what they really want to get out of a session and then the ups and downs of social media, making sure that we're aware of what we're putting on social media. It's a really good place to debate stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Call things out for what it is, but be able to give an alternate view. Yes. That's where the comments become really healthy. Yeah. And again, people are using that as a good resource for their diabetes and also to find us, I guess. Yeah. I'm just loving our P2 chats. Yeah, they And I really be. hope other people as well now that it's on iTunes, so it's much easier to find. And don't forget Wishka. Wishka. I love is that word. Where we've got it housed. And so you can subscribe uh, on both of those spots to receive each edition. If there's stuff that we want to put on, we're going to put that on the www.edhealth.com.au website and you just need to search P2 Chat so that you can find that information next week. Yeah, we thought we might talk about some of the new medications that are coming out uh, and some what to do for people that are going into hospital. Yeah, so surgery related. Yeah, yeah, I had a, again, a bit of an incident. We might have a bit of a chat about that that's always good food for thought yeah i always seem to bounce from one drama to another so again you know we quite like that because you know it gives us more ideas as long as you're safe that's Mm. all good and we're going to also explore a bit around colonoscopies because that comes up a lot around uh, getting ready and and what to do. So I want you to be safe with the information around what you're giving people if they've got surgery or procedures coming up. So we're going to include that um, be the focus. Podcasts are a really good way to listen on your way to work or when you're exercising over the weekend or in the office while you're doing your paperwork. And hopefully it becomes then a bit of a habit that you can just check in with what we're doing. Love you to click like if there's ever a like on anything, but do share it as well. But for now, that's goodbye from me, Jane Lehman. And goodbye from me, Kiralee Chambers. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.